If you're a longtime member or a first-time guest, I'm so glad you're here today. We're a church of people who come from a lot of different walks of life. We, uh, we have different experiences, maybe different church experiences, life experiences. A lot of us, I mean, we, we vote differently. We think about a lot of life differently, but we come into this place under the umbrella of Jesus. And we are committed to his mission, his heart, what Jesus is doing in the world, and how we can bring glory to him. I think of one of my good friends in this church. He's not here this morning, but Glenn Haley. He's two times older than me, but Glenn is a guy we communicate every single day. And Glenn and I have some things in common. We both lived a a good portion of our lives in Texas. We share a love for Whataburger and Dairy Queen and Texas high school football. and uh, And even right here in Memphis, we share a love for the Memphis Grizzlies. And there are some things Glenn and I have in common, a lot of things we don't have in common. And Glenn and I can go after one another. Almost every week, there's something about a post I had or a post he had or an email he sent or something I said. And he, he always tells me, he says, you know, you're doing my funeral one day. And I'm like, I am. And I'm going to read some of our text exchanges at your funeral one day. And as different as Glenn and I are about a lot of things in life, and even the days when Glenn goes after me about some of the things I've said, if you mess with my wife or kids, Glenn's going to show up at your front porch. And it's just that kind of bond we have, and it's a kind of church I want to cultivate, help cultivate here that, hey, we may think about some things in life differently, but we're coming together under the umbrella of Jesus to accomplish the work of God in the world. And we're going to rise above whatever challenges we have in the world and whatever polarization exists in the world to accomplish and to be about the mission of God. Um, I, I invite you to turn your Bibles to Philippians chapter 2. We're going to start out there this morning. And as you are going there, I just want to make you aware of a, a few things. I'm going to start a new sermon series next week that's going to go through Easter. It's called Renew. So what we're going to do over the next probably nine weeks, beginning next Sunday, is I'm going to talk about what it means to restore some things in our lives, like restoring the gift of confession and repentance. I'm going to talk about how to restore how we value time and simplicity. And we're going to talk about the cross and the power of the resurrection. And I'm going to preach a sermon on how to, how to restore wealth to its proper place in our lives. And, and then we have a couple of Sundays after Easter where we're going to talk about just what it means to live this new life with God. So I'm really excited about this. And I'm going to give you a couple of challenges. One is I want to invite you to invite a friend sometime in March. We have five Sundays in March. You've got five opportunities, five Sundays where we're going to be in a series renewed what it means to live for the glory of God. And I want to invite you to invite someone over the next five Sundays to come to church and then join us. Take them to lunch after church. Give them a reason to come. Like you're going to go buy them Central Barbecue and, and just see what happens. But will you, will you join me in praying for that? And also on April 12th, which is Easter, we're going to have a baptism Sunday. And we've had a few of these over the last few years in the life of our church. And, and, our, and our belief in baptism is if you feel the call of God on your life over the next seven weeks to commit to Jesus through baptism, we are not going to make you wait until April 12th on baptism Sunday to be baptized. You can be baptized whenever you feel the call of God on your life. But what we've also discovered is that some people need to put a date on a calendar. There's a decision someone's been putting off. There's a decision they haven't been thinking about. And now we know as a church, I'm asking you to join me to put April 12th on your calendar. And we want to pray toward this and work toward this and ask God to do wonderful things and to unleash salvation upon us. And let's just see what God will do. But if that is you and baptism is something that you know you need to seriously consider or commit to. If you could fill out a card or just shoot me an email and let's start talking about it over the next few weeks of what that will look like for you. Philippians chapter 2. This is where I want to begin today. 
In Philippians 2 verse 5, this is called the Christ hymn. A lot of people believe this was a song that the early church would sing together. And now it ends up in Philippians chapter 2, but they think Paul is quoting a song. And it goes like this, Philippians 2 verse 5. And your relationship with one another have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Like your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. Now some of you read that and you read it and it's like a burden. It's like I could never do that. This is meant to be, a, this, is, this is something to live into. This is the power of God entering into your life, helping you see life the way Jesus sees life. Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. And here's verse 6. Who being in the very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. But rather he made himself nothing. Repeat those four words with me. Say, he made himself nothing. Repeat that. He made himself nothing. Jesus stooped low. Jesus left the throne of heaven, the sovereignty of heaven, and he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. And look at this in verse 9, like, therefore, like, apparently the way this works in this Christ hymn in Philippians 2 is because of Jesus' commitment to go low, because of Jesus' commitment to stoop low, to leave the throne of heaven, to become a human, to, to be obedient to death, even death on a cross, therefore God exalted him. It's like because of Jesus' commitment and obedience, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven, on earth, under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is that the divine God in Jesus stooped low, got low. Jesus went as low as he could, humbled himself. And now anytime Jesus calls us to humility, he's not asking us to do anything he hasn't already done. Any call to humility, any call in your life to sacrifice is something Jesus has already done and he's accomplished. Philippians 2, 5 through 11 is that their vines stoop low. Jesus went low to help elevate who we are in this world. Now, if you skip over to Philippians 4, verse 9, you get to the end of this book that Paul wrote to this church, a, Paul, a church Paul deeply loved. And in Philippians 4, 9, here's what Paul says. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice. This is discipleship at its best. This is what we need in the church are people who've reached a level of maturity in their life where they know they have something to give. So, hey, you look to people younger than you. You look to people who haven't been with God as long as you have. And it's, hey, whatever you see in me, how you've seen me try to live this life committed to Jesus, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. Now, Paul takes time in Philippians to talk about what this commitment to Jesus looked like for him. And in Philippians 3, he goes a little biographical on us. And in Philippians 3, 4, what Paul says is if someone else thinks they have reasons to put confidence in the flesh, like if you think you have reasons to boast and you have a lot of accomplishments, Paul just goes on the record saying, I got more than you. And then he just starts naming stuff, which may not sound really like, this may not be impressive to you, but this is a pretty impressive list. 
He's like, I got reasons to boast in verse five. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of, he, a Hebrew of Hebrews in regard to the law of Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for righteousness based on the law, faultless. This is Paul's way of saying, you wanna look at my trophy case? I got more trophies than you. I probably won more awards than you. I was a valedictorian down at Cookie Canuck. I ate that four pound burger in nine and a half minutes and my picture's up on the wall. Like I, I've accomplished a lot in my life life. This is his way of saying, you think you have reasons to boast? I got more reasons than you to boast. And he lists all these accomplishments, but then he he goes on the record saying this. Here's what his commitment to Jesus is like in verse seven. Whatever gains to me, I now consider it lost for the sake of Christ. What's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them garbage. I consider it rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from, comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. And in verse 10, I want to know Christ, to know the power of his resurrection and participation in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow attaining to the resurrection from the dead. So in Philippians 4, 9, when Paul says, hey, whatever you saw me doing, like how you've seen me trying to honor Jesus in my life, this is what that commitment to Jesus has looked like in my life. I consider everything else lost, that I may be a part of what Jesus is doing in the world, that I may know Christ. This is what Paul lived for, at least the end of his life. It's what he lived for and gave his life for. It's what he wanted the church to be about. And then he sets the bar. In Philippians 4, 8, here's what Paul says. Finally, brothers and sisters, it's like, okay, after three and a half chapters of talking about the gospel and talking about what God is doing in the world, here it is. Brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. And if you go to the next slide, I just, I laid it out in a different format for you. This is Paul saying, okay, here, here are the things. Okay, whatever, and then he just starts filling in a blank. Like, this is it. And you may be looking at that list right now, and you're like, yeah, I think I've already messed up pretty bad in all those areas. And this is Paul, I don't think Paul is writing this to be a burden on you. Like, it's going to fill you with guilt because you're never going to attain that. It's Paul's way of encouraging you. Jesus died and Jesus rose from the dead and the Holy Spirit has empowered you in your life to raise the bar. To understand that God is trying to build character and integrity in you. So the way Philippians works, how I've explained it over the last few minutes. In Philippians 2, the divine Jesus went low and humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death so that you could go high. Not having a greater platform and more wealth in your life. But Jesus went low so that you could go high. And building character and integrity in a moral bar that is set high. So here's how the enemy wants to work in our lives. The enemy and Satan, the devil, whatever it is you want to call the enemy, the powers of darkness, the enemy can't do anything to undo the work of Jesus. The enemy cannot undo the work of the cross, the power of the blood of Jesus, the resurrection of Jesus. The enemy can't undo it. The enemy can't edit that. The enemy can't tweak it. The enemy cannot erase the hard drive, can't go back and get a do-over. The enemy cannot do anything. So what the enemy wants to do in your life is to keep you from believing in that power. And what the enemy wants to do in your life 
is to work with hell and as hell and like hell to get you to lower that bar, to lower your character and integrity just a little bit to keep you from being what God wants you to be in your life. Jesus died to raise you up, higher character, higher integrity, a higher moral bar, and the enemy is at work. And for most of you, the way it works is not that there's like a moral collapse or character collapse that just happens overnight, like just a crash. The way it works for most of us is just this little, slow, small decisions to lower the bar just a little bit. And after that, lower it just a little bit. And the way it often works is having that voice in your head that says stuff like, I mean, how close can I get to sin before it's really sin? Or the things I'm doing in my life really aren't that bad. In fact, some of the things I'm doing, I know like 20 other people who are doing things a lot worse than what I'm doing right now. So it it becomes what some people have called the gospel of sin management. So instead of like fleeing the enemy, we just try to manage the sin in our lives so it doesn't get out of control, which never works well for us. Jesus went low to lift up character, integrity, our moral bar. And then you have the Bible that often talks about what this struggle is like. In Romans chapter 7, Paul, Paul goes at it like this. In Romans 7 verse 15, and then the, the rest of this passage, I'm just reading three verses. And it's really fun if you read it fast, but I'm not, not going to do it. It's like the doo-doo passage. It's just all these do's. And it's Paul's, I don't understand what I do for what I want to do. I do not do, but what I have, I do. For I don't do the good I want to do, but the evil I do not want to do, this I keep on doing. And now if I do what I do not want to do, it's no longer I who do, but it's sin living in me that does it. And we can laugh and chuckle at it, but most of us read that and we're like, man, I I get what Paul's saying. That's been me before in my life, right? Like I get that struggle. There are times where I want to make a certain commitment and I don't want to do those things, but I do those things. And that's Paul, one of the greatest people in the Bible who talks about it. Peter often talks about stuff. So in 1 Peter, Paul, Peter says this, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles, as strangers, aliens, abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Abstain from temptations of the flesh that are coming after you. Now, the way the Bible talks about the flesh is sometimes we think flesh is bad. Flesh isn't bad. Flesh is good. The body's good. God created your body to be really good. Genesis 1 and 2, God created the body. When God created human beings, God said it's very good. That's a, it's a good thing. So there are times people come to me and they're like, Josh, I'm really struggling with temptations of the flesh. Will you ask God to take the desires away? In which my response is, I can't pray for the desires to go away from you because that would be to pray against how God created you to be. God created you with desires. God created things in our bodies like hormones and oxytocin. And so for oxytocin to like begin to flare and to ignite in your body, this is that drive in your body for, for connection and for affection and for companionship. And these aren't bad things, they're good things. Oxytocin is what happens when you hold hands with someone for the first time and your heart begins to race. So when Casey and I held hands for the first time in the drive through of Jack in the Box in Dallas, Texas, because I'm romantic like that. <clears throat> this is what happened, man. Your, your heart began to race. And God created the body with passion and with desires. This is, this is who God created us to be. It becomes a matter of self-control and honoring God with what we have. 
Brian Sands, he said this in one of his books. He says, when we live counter to who we have been created to be, there are dangerous implications psychologically and sociologically. That God created us a certain way, and when we live counter to that, it can have all kind of impacts on us. So I bet you could identify areas in your life right now that you would love a reset button, areas of your life where where you need a moral bar realignment. And I think for some of us, like we we can acknowledge this morning that to like, to try to build character and integrity in your life and to have a high moral bar in your life, it can get tiring sometimes trying to hold that thing up. And you have other people looking at you saying, you're not as fun holding that bar up as you would be if you let that bar come down just a little bit lower. And this plays out in our lives in a lot of different ways, through pride, through anger, through apathy in a lot of different ways, but especially when it comes to temptations of the flesh, to sexual sin. In 1 Corinthians 6, and I'm going to read the message version of 1 Corinthians 6, but here's what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. He says there's more to sex than mere skin on skin. Physical connection is as much spiritual mystery as, as physical fact. As written in Scripture, the two become one. Since we want to become spiritually one with the master, we must not pursue the kind of physical connection that avoids commitment and intimacy, leaving us more lonely than ever. The kind of sex that can never become one. There is a sense in which sexual sins are different from all the others. In sexual sin, we violate the sacredness of our own bodies. These bodies that were made for God-given and God-modeled love, for becoming one with one another. Or didn't you realize that your body is a sacred place, the place of the Holy Spirit? And don't you see that you can't live however you please, squandering what God paid such a high price for? The physical part of you is not some piece of property belonging to the spiritual part of you. God owns the whole works. So let people see God in and through your body. And I think most of us could say, we get the truth, but this is really hard. I have a buddy, I had a mentor years ago who told him, he said, hey, Lust is the second look. So you make sure that first look is good and long. (laughs) And my buddy said he listened to that and thought, even in his immaturity, I don't think that's God's definition of lust. (laughs) I just make it good and long and don't look again. I don't think that's it. But here's how, the cha- how challenging this is in our, in our culture today, all right? And, and I know some of you are big Bachelor fans, and I'm not, I'm not going to knock Bachelor. I don't want you sending me text messages because of what I'm about to say. And, and you can judge things I've watched too. I watched Breaking Bad in four months a few years ago, all right, because God just got stuck in it, all right? So, so many of us have made decisions. But sometimes we can think that, that maybe love happens like The Bachelor. So you have 20, 25, 30 people that you, you just kind of work your way through, hoping that in the end you land on the one. And the way this works in our culture, and this is both in our culture, but it's also creeped into the church, is sometimes the way we go about relationships is we, we hook up and we shack up. And then we hope it works. But most of the time it's hook up, shack up, and break up. And it's just this, this rhythm to just... Just goes, hook up, shack up, break up. And God created something that's supposed to be so much better than that. You're reading the creation story in Genesis 1 and 2. 
The way God talks about it in creation is that the two become one. And it's not just talking about physical connection and physical intimacy. It's, it's the two become one in every kind of way. They're, they become companions. It's like glue and their, their mind, heart, like heart, mind, body, and soul. Like they become one in every kind of way. When I walk a journey with people who've lost a spouse to death, like spouses don't come to me and say, you know, I just miss making out under the mistletoe. Like it's, I mean, I'm sure maybe they do a little bit, but it's, it's, I miss companionship. Like I miss everything that it means to be one. And throughout the Bible and today, if relationships are solely based on physical affection and connection, sooner or later, your heart will be broken. It doesn't last. It's not how God created relationships to be. And I don't care if you're 14 years old or you've been married 40 years. So there's this, this myth of the missing half. A lot of times we talk about trying to find the other half, like the missing half. Like we're half and we need the other half. And it's, a myth, like it's not something you find in the Bible. In fact, it goes all the way back to, to Greek mythology. It's Plato who first wrote about this. And the way Plato wrote about this was that there was this belief in Greek mythology that human beings were born with four legs, four arms, male parts, female parts, one head, two faces. And that in Greek mythology, it was, that's what a human being looked like. So the gods began to think that humans had too much power. So what the god Zeus did is he decided to split the humans in half. So instead of four legs, four arms, male parts, female parts, one face, two heads, now it became one face, one head, two arms, two legs, male and female. And then there became this pursuit of, how do I find the missing half? It's Greek mythology. And the gods, it was a brilliant part on their part because what they did is, hey, we're going to split them so we're going to multiply people, which also means there's going to be more people to worship the gods because that's just how it worked. But then it became this part of missing half. So in life, if we believe we're trying to find a missing half, then we can put our faith in a spouse or a faith in another human being. And when we put faith in a spouse or a faith in a human being to fulfill the greatest voids in our lives, we're always going to end up with broken hearts because we can't expect humans to fulfill something that only God can fill. And as simple and cliche as it sounds, until God is enough, nothing else will be. Until God's enough, nothing else will be. So my encouragement to you today from Philippians 4.8 is like raise the bar in your life. It doesn't happen overnight, but it's God building character in you and building integrity and in you raise the bar. And if you keep a bar high, especially for the younger people, keep a bar high, there are going to be fewer regrets you're going to have in your life. Because what we often try to do is we try to like hold a bar high with one hand while looking at porn with the other. Or trying to raise a bar of character and integrity with one hand, but with the other we're engaging in forms of greed or complacency and other things that erode. It causes erosion to the, to the character and integrity we're trying to build or God's trying to build in us. So to my married friends in the room, keep the bar high. The way Hebrews talks about this in Hebrews chapter 13 verse 14 is this. And it's just this little one verse on marriage. 
But marriage should be honored by all. Like everyone in the church should be rooting for married people to succeed in their marriages. Marriage should be honored by all. And the marriage bed kept pure for God will judge the adulterer and all the sexually immoral. So hey, God's going to take care of the judging. So don't raise your hand as if that's a spiritual gift of yours and you want to do it. God's going to do that. You root for marriages. The marriage bed should be kept pure. And the marriage bed isn't kept pure by, by really what happens in the marriage bed. It's what happens everywhere else in the marriage and in the, and, and in the lives of the two people who are in that married relationship. To my married friends, keep a bar high. And to my single friends, keep the bar high of character and integrity. Keep it high. Historians often say that the church was the first movement in the history of the world where singleness was seen as a viable option for life. Like the church was the first movement in the world that that basically would say, hey, single people, you could be single for the rest of your life and honor God and live a a life of fulfillment. So the, the purpose in life and the goal of life isn't to get married, it's to honor God. In fact, the Bible sometimes, even Paul, goes, goes out on a limb saying, hey, sometimes if you're single, you're going to have a better shot to like honor God and bring glory to God with your life than if you get married. It, it can become complicated in a marriage. So, single people, keep the bar high. Jesus died, Jesus rose, Jesus lives and has empowered us to be people of character, integrity, and to have a high moral compass. Randy Harris, my good friend, meets with me and about 15 other preachers once a year, and he gives us the same speech every year. And one thing he tells us annually, we know it's coming from him, but we need it every year. And what Randy will tell us is he'll say, guys, look, if the price is right, anyone's character can be for sale. If the price is right, your integrity can be for sale. If the price is right, purity can be for sale. If the price is right, that, that moral bar that you tried to hold high, if the price is right, It can be for sale. So honor it and fight for it with everything you have. So Philippians 4.8, that talks about whatever is true and whatever is noble and whatever is right and whatever is pure and whatever is admirable and whatever is lovely. This is prevention for you to keep you from the things that the enemy is trying to use to bring you down. It's prevention, but most of us look at the list and we're like, man, we have fallen in a lot of those areas. And it's also good news that God is still in the business of repairing those things in your lives lives that have been broken. So the good news for, for a lot of us in the room today is that when you're down, Jesus doesn't kick people who are down. Jesus lifts up people who are down. The good news is that that you are not beyond redemption. You are not beyond the redemption of God. The redemption of God can, can still find you. The good news is that the love of God can penetrate the darkest chasms in your life. That the love of God can find you in your weakest moments and in your worst mistakes. That the good news is that, is that you are not defined by your worst mistakes in your life. When God looks at you through what Jesus has accomplished through the cross, God does not see you as your worst mistake. God sees you as someone who's been redeemed by the blood of Jesus. That's how God sees you. That's who God calls you to be. The way the grace of God works is that the grace of God isn't waiting for you to get your life right. Instead, the grace of God is a catalyst in your life to help get your life right. And know that the enemy is at work in your life to try to plant these little lies about just lowering that bar and maybe character and integrity can come down just a little bit so you can have more friends and maybe have fun in life, that the enemy is planting those lies, but resist the enemy by, by a life of prayer, by a life of Bible intake and by courage 
Know that the enemy is at work in your life to try to, try to hover guilt and shame over you for the mistakes you have made in your life, but confront that and resist it by believing the things that Jesus says about you and that they are true. The enemy is gonna try to work in your life to plant these little lies and these little questions of like, how close can I get to sin before it's really sin? Or at least some of the things I'm doing in my life are better than like all my other friends, so maybe I can keep doing some of the things I'm doing. Resist it. Resist the lies of the enemy. And pursue a life of purity and holiness with God. And maybe you're sitting here today and you're listening to this sermon and you're like, I don't really know if that really fits my life right now. Or Josh, things in my life really aren't as bad as maybe the enemy wants me to believe. Know this, that God wants something better for you. And God's better for you is often found by walking a hard road of radical obedience Obedience to God, so whatever is true, whatever's noble, whatever's pure, whatever's lovely, whatever's pleasing, whatever is admirable, think about these things, press into these things to the glory of God. Let me ask the elders and prayer leaders, if you will, go around the room to receive people today. And there may be a, someone here, you just, there's a need for God in your life. There's a response to something I have said that maybe the spirit of God is trying to awaken something in you. And around the room, we have people to receive you. And the way this often works is if there's something you want to bring in front of this church, a need in your life, we have elders up front here to receive you. And around the room, you see other people. And if you go to these people around the room, they are there just to receive you. It doesn't have to be something that comes in front of the entire church. They are there for you, to receive you, to pray over you, speak a blessing over your life. It can be a place of confession, of repentance, of anointing, whatever you need it to be. And for the rest of us, we're going to stand and we're going to sing this song as an anthem. When we sing it for ourselves and we also sing it for each other, that this is our cry. So let's stand and let's respond to God with this song.